Hello and welcome back to Old Spiral Podcast. Today is Sunday, Mother's Day. Hello, Mom, the woman who made me. Uh, I suppose we could dedicate this to our mothers, couldn't we, Drew? We could, and we should. This one's for you, Kelly. Yeah, and Adrian. Yo, Adrian. Uh, Yeah, well, she got that a lot growing up in the, you know, the 80s. I would assume. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Let's see. What do I like about my mom? Besides the fact that she's my mom and she's good at it, um, she's always been very supportive, really nice. She's creative and she likes uh, researching new things and she's always trying to better herself. And I think it's great. And mom, uh, if you're listening, I love you. And I hope to see you soon. Because as people that might know listening, she lives on the west side. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, my mom is is very crafty and um, very good at interior designing and rearranging the house and coming up with stuff like that. She's also very helpful. She just helped me all weekend and the previous weekend on a... Rachel and I's new house, and uh, she's also the finder of lost things. Ah, moms have that special sort of mom sense where they, they just know where things are. They really do. I, I remember uh, throwing temper tantrums when I was little over lost uh, fishing lures, <laughs> and she'd be able to find them. Nice. Yeah. Also, so. I'd like to point out that I had I have a stepmom, and who I've, I've known since I was four, so mm. basically since I've had real memories. Mm-hmm. So I just want to say happy Mother's Day to Anne as well. Very yes. hardworking, taught me lots of good habits that mm-hmm. I ignored until recently, obviously. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but I did learn them. It just took a while to sink in, I suppose. Well, now you're uh, an accomplished student, and uh, you just finished grad school, so... I did finish must, everybody... must have sunk in somewhat. <laughs> Everybody that listened last week or watched the video on YouTube, it worked. I passed. Nice. And now I can just, you know, look for a job and stuff. Yeah, it's really not fun, I can tell you, uh, from experience. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. (laughs) We'll keep you updated if you're interested. (laughs) Uh, But we're not here today to talk about moms, even though moms are wonderful. Great. Uh, We are actually here to talk about um, a little bit about Lewis Clark State College. Drew and I are both alums of Lewis Clark State College. Uh, My degree was in chemistry. Drew, you graduated with two bachelors? No, minors. You got a bunch of minors. Yeah, I got a bunch of minors, but my bachelor's degree is a bachelor of science and social sciences with Mm -hmm. a cultural anthropology emphasis. Nice. I minored in math. Mm. <laughs> Nerd alert, as my wife would say. No, I, I wish I was better at math. I'm horrible at math. So, Well, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, math's fun. That's also not why we're here. But we thought we'd tell you a little bit about our experiences at, at LC, but most specifically, we'll keep that pretty brief, maybe save it for another time when we get some faculty in to talk about things that are going on. Uh, My wife, Caitlin's brother, teaches at LC. His name is Bryce Cammers. And I was talking to him the other day because he's also on the library 
the Soton County Library Board, mm-hmm. and they're working on uh, a remodel at the moment. And we were going to have him come in and talk to us about it, but he suggested that maybe there were some other members of the library board that would be more apt to that. But we thought something fun that he could do would be come in and talk about current updates because there's a lot of changes happening at LC right now. Right, right. Yeah. Unfortunately, they're not fun updates. They're like <laughs> budget cut updates. Right. And, and one thing that really struck me, uh, uh, there's two things. One, the faculty at LC, I mean, th- there's a lot of really impressive... Um, faculty with backgrounds, and then just teaching and research abilities. Mm-hmm. And they notoriously get paid really low. Right. And they kind of choose this uh, low pay to benefit the students because, as we know, LC tuition is super low. Yeah, and I think it's also a trade-off that they are willing to accept because um, from from what I've seen, they, they get to build relationships with students, and I think they get a lot out of that. Whereas, you know, if you're at a big university, it's kind of publisher-parish mentality. Like, you've got to constantly be working on something where their work is focused on helping students specifically. Yeah, which we super appreciate graduating mm-hmm. from there. We both learned a whole lot. And, uh, yeah, so... Again, more specifically than that, uh, there's this really cool program that Drew's going to tell us about called the Hell's Canyon Institute. And I was never a part of this program, uh, although it sounded really fun. My educational career was more of a zigzag than a straight line. And so I was busy trying to not spend, um, you know, an extra few years taking fun classes. I was taking a bunch of, you know, math classes. Right. Yeah. Yeah, so um, we could talk about Hell's Canyon Institute. We could also talk about uh, some of the research I did in Ecuador. We could talk about some of the research that you did with Dr. Nancy Johnson as well. Um, and and Dr. Johnson is also involved in HCI. Right, um, yeah. So, yeah, we, we could go in a couple different avenues, but we could kick it off by talking about Hell's Canyon Institute. Um, if you're a student at LC, I would definitely recommend it. Um, and if you're somebody that's just a supporter of what LC does, um, I would definitely stick around and check out what this class is all about because it's it's really cool and it's it's a cool way to connect learning to life, which is LC's little slogan. Um, basically, what it is is it's a semester long learning about Hell's Canyon, and during that time, you're building sort of a research plan and. Um, different sort of modes of research for whatever it is you want to study that's kind of based around your main focus of study in college. So let's say you're a chemist, you would do a chemistry project or uh, art, you would do art projects, so on and so forth. A geologist, it'd be pretty easy to come up with something. It would rock. (laughs) So is Hell's Canyon the deepest, is it a Gorge? It's a gorge. I think they consider it the deepest inland gorge. Mm, okay. Deeper I, than uh, Grand Canyon, right? I believe so. I believe Don't so. Don't quote me on that. All right. I was hoping you would know. I'd heard that. So it's, if I've heard it and you've heard it. It's been a number of years since I've been in that class, so I'm not positive, but it is something along those lines. And of course, if you haven't taken a trip up to Hell's Canyon, please do so. It's, oh, it's, it's really beautiful. cool. beautiful. 
Yeah, and it's it's really neat to watch the landscape sort of shift and change between here in the valley and there in, in the Hell's Canyon because Hell's Canyon, there is no the for those that don't Just know. Just like Old Spiral Podcast and Facebook and right. there is no the. Right. But yeah, if you get into Hell's Canyon, there's cactus and it's it's kind of like a desert almost. So it's it's pretty neat to check it out. I mean, the name is there for a reason. <laughs> it's it's sort of hellish. <clears throat> yeah, I can imagine it gets pretty scorching there in the summer. Mm-hmm. So what my project focused on when I took that class was actually on the Basque sheep herders um, of the 60s. And Basque is a region, is it south of Italy? Or is it in between Italy and France? Or It's sort of in between France and Spain. France so and it's, Spain. That it's was actually it. in... Sorry, guys, I get Italy and Spain mixed up sometimes. I don't know how, but that's what happens in my head. <laughs> um, it, it's actually in Spain, and it runs from sort of the south of France to like the coastal side of, of Spain. Um, but they're one of the oldest cultures that we know of they have some of the oldest language that we know of but many basque folks moved to this area in particular like idaho southern idaho nevada california to work as sheep herders um and there was sort of a hub of these sheep herders in boise and they would get sent out across the west coast to work in different areas and uh I actually met somebody named Patricia Keith. She's the person that came up with the Hell's Canyon Institute. She's a former faculty member at LC, and she also is a documentary filmmaker. And she's making a film right now, again, about these uh, Basque shepherds, sheep herders. Um, she met uh, a few of these Basque brothers that used to work uh, in Hell's Canyon herding sheep when she was up around the Eagle Cap Wilderness area uh, a number of years ago and started speaking with this guy that she met up there and and realized he had had this cool back past life of, of herding sheep and he would start in the canyon and move his way up to around Joseph and then come back down. So it was all based on a circular pattern based on the seasons in the year and moving the sheep from the time that they were going to be lambing and then shearing later on and then moving them out but basically what happened was that industry kind of just fell through um wool was not needed as much and so benny he that was his name benny he had to move back to spain he met a woman um who did not agree with to move with him to hell's canyon unfortunately because mm -hmm. what he wanted to do was actually buy the outfit that he worked for and, and continue to herd cheap um, but they were on these three-year bids, so he'd be here for three years, and then he would go back to Granica, which is where he's from, and in that time, he met his wife, and she said, you know, you got to hang this up. Ah. But... She was uh, in, in Spain and France and didn't want to move to northern Idaho? Spain, yeah, she did not. Oh. But um, luckily for us, um, those of us who are interested in this amazing story and this <clears throat> lineage... Benny took amazing photos of this whole time that he was doing this and was really good at cataloging exactly where these photos were taken, when. And so we have this really cool um, living memory of, of these events captured in photos. So 
I'm really excited for Patricia to, to come out with their, her film. Um, I got to help her do some research at the archives and BSU and at the Basque Museum in Boise. So we got to look into that a little bit, but I, I learned a lot. And basically what I did during my time in the canyon as part of Hell's Canyon Institute was take footage with my drone, with GoPros, and um, kind of look at the the lens of what these guys were seeing and some of these spots where they were moving sheep around. And we worked on this sort of interactive map that would show you exactly the little route that they would take based on pictures that Benny had. Um, But other students worked on a number of things. Um, Some worked on like turbidity in the, in the snake river. Some worked on again, art projects. Um, Yeah. And it's, it's kind of a weird setup for the class because the first half of the semester, you're, you're, you're kind of doing in-class stuff, right? Like yeah. research on trying to figure out what project you want to do. And then is it over spring break? You actually go on a trip mm-hmm. to Hell's Canyon to do the research and everything. And then yeah. you all come back and give presentations, right? Exactly. And during that sort of structuring of what you're going to research and do, you're also learning about the canyon. Mm. So you learn a lot about the history of it, um, and and it also invites in a number of different faculty to speak about different areas of, of their expertise on the canyon. So you learn about, like, fire ecology. You learn about cultural significance. You learn about, um, like, from Dr. Nancy Johnson, you learn about, like, atmospheric stuff. Um, we got to do some GIS stuff. Um, so you really get to learn a lot and it's a really fun class because it's an interdisciplinary, interdisciplinary class. So there's a number of students that are going to be in there with you that you wouldn't otherwise probably have or see on campus. Yeah, that's kind of nice because you generally don't see too many people outside of your discipline. Right. And so it was kind of weird because, you know, I was older at the time. I was like in my middle twenties, maybe sort of my early twenties. When I took that, so I was a little bit older than everybody else by a couple of years. Um, yeah, I was in that same boat. I think I was 26 when I graduated. Yeah, yeah. And so um, the thought of like spending a week with people that are outside of your discipline was kind of weird, but it actually ended up being an amazingly fun time. I really got to make some great friends. Uh, one is sort of a mutual friend that we have, Damien. Ah, uh, Damien Ketcherside. Damien Ketcherside, good guy. Yeah, it was at his wedding. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, and he went to Ecuador with me to do research as well. Yeah, so uh, I guess, was Ecuador part of the Hell's Canyon class? No, no, I just kind of um, really talked a lot about going to Ecuador and convinced Damien to go. Ah, okay. Yeah, so we we did that class together. We kind of became buds, um, and then... I just said, hey, I'm going to be going to Ecuador again because at that time I'd already gone once. You really should consider going. It's it's a great uh, program, and we can get into some of that stuff later too. But mm-hmm. um, but then the back half of that class is finishing up your research. Like you said, you go and you spend a week in Hell's Canyon, and for every day that you're there, you're kind of focused on a different discipline with a different um, professor. So they're going to give you like a – in the field lecture, and you're going to do something based on so whatever their discipline is. Who were some of the professors that went along with you, and, and what did they do? So Dr. Nancy Johnson went. Um, she spoke about 
uh, fire ecology and sort of what the atmospheric um, factors are and, and, and what happens when there is a fire. Um, fires have really plagued the Hell's Canyon, Hell's Canyon many, many times over the years. Um, they still do. It's just a part of what happens around that region. Um, we well, have, yeah, it's hot, dry. Right. Yeah. yeah. And it's also kind of surrounded by timber on the top ridges of it as well. Hmm. Um, then we also had, um, did Keegan Schmidt ever go along? We did have him. Yeah. He, yeah. he came to talk about geology, of course. So we hopped on a boat and he took us down the canyon and said, showed us these sort of different geological features, um, of which there are many different unique ones to the canyon. I don't really remember them, unfortunately. Um, but then we also had um, Dr. Jenny Light and she right. would, used to be neighbors with Dr. Light. Ah, oh, I see. I think doctor. It would have to be doctor. Yeah, I think it is. Yeah. She spoke to us about, um, or taught us instructional lessons on uh, GIS. Oh, okay. So we got to learn about GIS from her. Um, uh, Marlo DeGaliano, Dr. Marlo DeGaliano, she sort of heads up uh, HCI right now. And she had us do some sort of creative writing exercises um, and keep a log of our experiences while in the canyon. Um and then my advisor, Dr. Krenz Allison, came and spoke about cultural significance and some fire things as well. Um, and I feel like I'm going to be missing people. I don't want to. Of course, Dr. or Patricia Keith, I believe doctor as well, um, she came and she gave us a really cool um, story on um, the Chinese massacre that happened in Hell's Canyon. Right, because uh, uh, during the... Would be late 1800s. A lot of Chinese people came over to mine. Yeah, all over the West Coast and build railroads. Yeah, but of also mining was pretty big up there. Yep. And There's a lot of uh, old structures that you can see. We used to raft the lower salmon, and mm-hmm. that shoots out into the snake. And then on there, there's a, there's a well, there's a whole rapid called China, mm-hmm. and then it's called that because there's uh, the old stone foundation of a house from some miners that were here you know, years and years ago. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, unfortunately I believe it was 11 or 13 Chinese miners were massacred, um, at this certain prospecting camp. They were terribly successful at this and it really made a lot of the folks that lived here upset. Mm. The, the white guys upset, uh, that they were able to sort of come in these places that they had already checked out and they thought, well, there's nothing here. And they would come out with loads of gold. So they they took it upon themselves to sit up on the banks um, of the canyon and sort of just rain bullets down on this uh, prospecting camp of Chinese miners. Um, they it was it was really different being there and sort of a, a really somber, sad feeling, just kind of knowing what happened on the on the walls of those canyons. But I mean, it, it, when you're there, you can really see how there would have been no way of them knowing that they were going to be ambushed because you have the factor of the water rushing near you there on the beach. So that's going to deter some sound. Mm-hmm. The canyon walls, again, are very high. So you don't necessarily look up to the very edges very often and see things. And there's also a good amount of wind. So you couldn't really hear anything. So that you would have had no way of knowing that there were folks up on top sort of plotting to shoot you. And I believe that it was either 11 or 13 people died that day. 
Um, but there were a group of people from China that were relatives of these people that had been massacred. They kept these logs of all of these folks that came from China to mine. And so through these logs, they're able to find their relatives. And years later, um, they put a monument there and a bunch of people from China came and sort of did a blessing over the land to set the spirits free of all these, these miners that had died. And Patricia Keith was involved in that as well. But we just sat there and kind of meditated on the heaviness of that experience that happened and, and kind of put yourself in that, in that time and place. And just, like I said, thinking about up on the Canyon and, uh, you being down on the ground, it, it would have been impossible to know what was going to happen. And it's just sad and unfair. And yeah, greed and envy. Yep. And so we just sat in that and felt it for a minute. And it was, it was a cool experience. Um, but then you had other guests that came in. Like we had a, a gentleman that came from uh, the Nez Perce tribe. He's not a tribal member himself, but he is helping them with their condor recovery. Because, um, contrary to the name, California condors do not solely exist in California. They actually live all up and down the West Coast. And we used to have quite a few of them here. Hmm. Um, and the Nez Perce or Nimipu believe that uh, the world will be restored when the condor returns. So things will be kind of right and in balance when, when we're able to have our, our condors here again. Well, hopefully that comes soon. Yeah. Uh, because yeah. it's certainly out of balance at the moment. <laughs> Definitely. <clears throat> yeah, you mentioned like putting yourself back in that time. And I know I've spent a little bit of time up there, you know, going up the Snake River and into the Salmon. And it's this weird kind of juxtaposition of no one really... There's a few cabins out there, but it's it's out away from everything and it's almost like time standing still, but then you have that, you know, the, the, the river kind of representing time as it carves out these, these canyons, like mm-hmm. I mean, Hell's Canyon, I think was part of it formed. You probably don't remember this was part Missoula of it formed flood Missoula plains. flood plains yeah. from all the glaciers coming yep. down. Yeah. This whole region. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, um, the, you mentioned the salmon. So <clears throat> the main means of getting up the canyon, of course, is the snake, but Right where the salmon feeds into the snake, just near there is where the Amnaha feeds in from the Oregon side. And that really feels like a different place. I mean, if you're back there, it kind of looks like you're in the American Southwest. Like it looks like you would be in New Mexico or Arizona or something like that. Um, it's it's really cool. I'd like to go back in there and, and try fishing. Uh, it looks like a great stream to try to fish and not that many people go back there cause it is kind of, kind of hard to get to, but uh, yeah, it takes a lot of gas to get up there. Yeah. And if you, you can get to the top of it from the Oregon side by driving there and then walking down, but it, it's quite a hike. Um, there is a nice trail. I would encourage those of you who, um, kind of know what you're doing to go check it out because it is pretty cool, but it is dangerous. There is a lot of rock slides that happen. It is, um, rattlesnake country. Ra- yep. It's full of rattlesnakes, pretty jagged. Um, so kind of have a plan, tell somebody that you're going to go there if you do go, but yeah, it's full of great history. We also had, um, other guest speakers like Steve Evans, not a relative. I wish he was, <laughs> uh, come and speak and his wife, Connie, um, they spoke about, um, Buffalo Eddie 
and oh, okay. and the petroglyphs mm-hmm. left behind by the Nez Perce. Um, and Steve Evans and Alan Pinkham actually wrote a really cool book together. Uh, I forget the name of it right now, but if you if you search for them uh, by name, you'll find the book. It's great to read about. Um, again, reflecting on the history and culture of the Nez Perce or the Nimipu. And you get to go check out some places where there used to be the structures of long houses. Um, you get to see where Ordway's trail was, um, who split off from the Lewis Clark expedi- expedition. You get to see where Lewis and Clark actually hung out. Um, the Nez Perce actually kind of saved their butts and fed them some salmon and, and kept them going. And you get to see where that event took place. You also get to see where um, the Nez Perce would have traversed the river and this hillside from Oregon into Idaho. Yeah. It's, it's pretty cool to learn about how they were able to find a channel to get across with their horses in the, in the snake, because it's, it's a big river. It really is. Yeah. And you keep saying Nez Perce or Nimipu. And so I'm assuming Nimipu is what they call themselves because Nez Perce is obviously French. Right. Pierced nose. Yep. Yeah. So it's crazy how long it's, it's still kind of stuck around that that's what they're called could you speak a little bit more to that is that um in terms of just why the name uh, why how how'd they get that the two names i mean obviously well, one nimipu is is what they would call themselves sure. in their in their in their language mm-hmm. um and i believe it means the people okay um and that's what they'd always been called many of the tribes in america of course have been given names by us, by right. us, I mean. Well, I never named anybody. White white <laughs> yeah. settlers, but you know what I mean. Amer- sure. Uh, European American settlers. Um, I guess it would have been our ancestors. Yeah, not, uh, not us specifically. Well, not my ancestors either. We kind of came over yeah, that's after true. all that. So that's true. <laughs> yeah, I like making that joke. I'm not going <laughs> to make it now, but it's uh, my German ancestors came over before Hitler and, or after the slaves. So. <laughs> Anyway, <laughs> um, but but yeah, they they prefer the, to be called that. Um, some people from within the tribe may prefer to be called Nez Perce. So yeah, that's kind of what I was wondering. I mean, it, it can be a little bit difficult trying to be respectful. Yeah, and using um, the right one. Uh, yeah, and it's it's also difficult in it's difficult for a lot of reasons. It's difficult. Like I, I took an American Indian law class as well, in, in college and. Some people prefer to be called Indian. Some people prefer to be called Native American. Some people prefer to be called Aboriginal. Um, you know, there are many different terms that people just feel more comfortable with. So I think this is kind of a sidetrack now, but it's always important to ask. Sure. How would you like to be called so that you can be respectful and mindful of others? Yeah, and that's yeah. the whole point. You don't want to be like the miners who ambushed, you know. <laughs> Yeah, uh, you want to be respectful, right? Yeah, especially yeah, especially in such a beautiful area like Hell's Canyon. Yep. So when you went up there, where did you guys stay when you went and, and visited yeah. Hell's Canyon? So we stayed at Garden Creek Ranch. Um, apparently, it's the oldest stick building that's out there in the canyon right now. Okay. So it's the longest standing structure out there, and it's it's a really beautiful place, I believe. Um, I don't want to get this wrong. I think the Nature Conservancy owns it right now. Um, and a gentleman from that organization came out and spoke as, w- as well about different protected areas in Idaho. And it was really cool to sit and listen to him talk about the work that he does in 
um, making sure that we maintain these places and, and their protection so that they can't be exploited for their resources or just, you know, destroyed or taken away because they're not making new land and they're not making new land that's amazing and fantastic that, you know, we're so lucky to have in our area, um, a huge abundance of. So it's our jobs to be good stewards of the land and, and, uh, take an active role in being many conservationists and doing what we can. Um, and so he just kind of came and gave a perspective on that. Um, but there's so much in that class that you learn. There's so many people that come in and out of it that, that teach you these valuable lessons. Um, and it's, it's definitely one of the best programs at LC. Yeah. 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 Speaking of being a mini conservationalist, I was so disappointed to see in the news. This happens every now and again. Uh, I don't, I think it was somewhere in Oregon. They had to close down hiking on some of these trails because people were littering, making messes, going to the bathroom wherever. Mm -hmm. And it was really disappointing. If you're going to go out and enjoy these beautiful spaces, pack it in, pack it out. Yep bury it deep or take it with you Mm -hmm. so there's there's it's just the simple things that we can all do what would you do in your house you know what i mean right well maybe that's not a good example i've seen some of your houses (laughs) uh but no what would you do in your own house you know what i mean right yeah we got to keep it good for future generations and and just have respect for the land as well well and if you're willing to go through all the effort to plan a day to get out there and and do all this stuff i mean obviously you're not that lazy so don't be so lazy that you can't pick up after yourself. It's just stupid. Pick up everything that you take out there and leave. I mean, the, it's just dumb. <laughs> why Why do that? Yeah. Um, but, yeah, also on another uh, note of conservation, Pebble Mine is under threat again. So what is Pebble Mine? It's, uh, it's a really cool place, a uh, fishery that's, um, under threat of being mined and it's, it's not, uh, mined right now, but they want to put a mine in. So go check that out. Um, sign a petition to make sure that it can't be mined. Uh, it was protected under the Obama administration. That's since been reversed. So let's make sure people can't mine that and destroy. Is that a just really a great fishery? It's a, so it's a, fi- it's a fishery. Yeah. That so that's it? why it's near and dear to my heart. I've never been there. I can't go there. It's a long ways away, but. Is a fishery different? Do they breed fish there or is it just like a natural ecosystem for fish? Yeah. So what both? you're, th- what you're thinking of is a hatchery. Ah, yes. Yeah. Okay. So a fishery, yeah. a fishery, a fishery is in reference to just a good spot to go fishing. Hmm, gotcha. Um, a hatchery of course is like what you said, kind of where we're. Coming in as man and playing God and, and yeah. making making little smolts. More fisheries. Yep. Yeah. More fisheries. We got to keep those around. Well, yeah, Hell's Canyon Institute, again, if you're at LC, definitely look into it. I'm sad I, was, I never uh, took it. It sounds like it was a lot of fun. It was. And uh, yeah. it sounds like you guys had a lot of fun there. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I guess I was mistaken. For some reason, I had it in my head that your Ecuador trips were somehow a part of this. No, but there, there's just overlap. From different people, some that of were the involved. people that were involved. Yeah. Okay, so what about that? So how did how did you get involved in going to Ecuador? You went twice. I did. I went twice. And was this for a class or for research or for a group uh, or kind, all of the above? Kind of all of the above. Yeah, yeah. And uh, 
And before we get too far, too, I want to ask you about your research that you got to do with uh, Dr. Nancy Johnson. Ah, uh, yeah. Studying the air around the valley as well. Yeah, I never went to Ecuador, but I did go to the mill. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was it was a lot of fun. It's been a few years since I've, um, you know, thought about the research that we've been doing around mm-hmm. here. Uh, we have a paper that Damien and I started our last semester there. Mm-hmm. Um, we, st- I guess I graduated just, just before he did, but, uh, we started that paper a couple years ago. It's finally finished mm-hmm. and out, uh, trying to find a journal who will review it and hopefully get it published, which is kind of cool. But what we did is we went and we had, um, you know, about 10 sites around the valley and we took air samples, um, sort of similar to what I did at WSU, just with different uh, different laboratory instruments, is mm-hmm. what we call them. And we were looking at sulfur compounds mostly. So everyone knows the Lewiston's uh, got sort of a unique smell at times. <laughs> That has to do with the craft pulp paper process. That's the smell of money, right? I have a shirt that declares as such. <laughs> uh, yeah, it is the smell of money, and and I don't think this place would would be the same without the mill. I think the mill is very important. I think that you with uh, I think that with all the forests around here, there is definitely a sustainable and healthy way to harvest lumber and turn it into the paper that we all know and love: toilet mm-hmm. paper, tissue. Um, I think they do paper towels as well. I'm not they sure do. all of the different products that come out of the mill, but I know they do a whole lot. Mm-hmm. Supply a good portion of the country. Yeah. Uh, yeah. My dad worked there when I was young. Uh, my uncle retired from there a few years ago, so my family's been employed at the mill. Yeah, mine uh, as well. My dad works there still. He's worked there for decades, and his dad worked there for over 40 years, so... Yeah, if you're out there on the mill at the mill and you uh, want to give a shout out to my dad on the roll grinders, tell him I said what's up. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. So we're not we're not anti mill, but it is important to know that the mill is releasing chemicals during this process. It's just inevitable. Mm-hmm. These chemicals are regulated by, and that well, maybe when Nancy comes in, she can speak a little bit more to the regulation process, because I feel like it very well does get bogged down in the politics of everything. Mm-hmm. I want people to know that just because I'm an environmental engineer doesn't mean you get to blame me for the policies that come out <laughs> of the state. Uh, all I do is check levels, everybody. But no, it was a lot of fun. The bulk of the research was we took these little tubes and they were filled with, um, uh, for simplicity, they're filled with activated carbon. Mm-hmm. It's like a special activated carbon and you'd flow air through them, about a liter of air. And the activated carbon, we would stick to all these different compounds. And then so we'd take them back to the lab and we'd use mass spectrometry, which I talked about last time, but this was called uh, uh, gas chromatography and then mass spectrometry. So what basically what you do is you get this little tube, you'd uh, get the air through it, you get all the compounds, you'd take it back to the lab, uh, then we'd have a machine heat up the tube 
and then flow air in the opposite direction to get all of the con uh, all the contaminants off of it and then it would go through this really 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 tiny diameter tubing and it's uh, and it's coiled right and so it's like 30 to 60 meters long mm. of this tubing and it's coated with a special substance and all of the different contaminants they you know all all the different compounds have different characteristics and based on these characteristics they'll interact with the sides of uh, the sides of this uh, really tiny diameter tubing and they'll all be separated. So you take all these gas components that are mixed up everywhere, and we can actually separate them out one by one. And kind of based on how long it takes for them to get out of the tube, you can kind of see, you'll see a different, it'll be like a, a, a time on the bottom axis, and you'll see these little peaks pop up. Mm. Uh, every few minutes uh, for a different compound. And then those would run through a mass spectrometer, and then that would tell you what the compounds were. Gotcha. Yeah. So that was a lot of fun. Uh, obviously, we were looking at sulfur compounds. Um, you can only look at so much that you can only look at what you can calibrate for in the lab. Sure. So we were looking at uh, dimethyl sulfur, dimethyl disulfur. So these are just a couple things. There's more sulfur compounds, hydrogen sulfide, that we didn't really look at. Those were two. There's a few others that, of course, I'll forget. Um, but besides sulfur, which that's kind of what people wanted to know is, oh, is the sulfur bad for you? Well, the sulfur's not, as far as I remember, the sulfur's not really the harmful thing. It just smells bad. Mm. It's unpleasant. Sure. But the sulfur is not going to hurt you. But when you smell the sulfur, there are a lot of compounds you can't smell. It's like uh, we have natural gas in our house. Mm -hmm. And so when people run natural gas lines, they'll put a little bit of sulfur in the natural gas so you can smell it. So if there's a leak, because yeah. human noses are very sensitive to sulfur just because uh, it's a byproduct of like rotten meat. Mm -hmm. So we've adapted this really strong um, tolerant or strong capability of smelling sulfur yeah yeah same with uh they do that they add that additive to propane as well as yeah exactly hank hill would be interested in letting you know mm -hmm. i'd be interested in letting him tell me uh, <laughs> so so what what's the scoop are these externalities harmful to us or are we at a at a safe level well yeah some of these compounds you've probably heard of benzene toluene chloroform mm -hmm. stuff like that and i can't remember i uh, whether or not we're on a safe level just kind of on average i can't really speak to that i i'd have to go back and look but what we did find is uh and before i talk about that we we set up 10 sites all around the valley so mm -hmm. we had one up by that co cross country running trail up behind ziggy's okay yeah, ziggy's <laughs> and we also had um we had them all over Sunset Park. I'm not going to name all of them because I'll forget. Uh, Sunset Park all the way to up in the orchards. I think we we took samples in Lapway and then over by the casino. And so we just tried to get a really good spread east, west, and south of... Oh, we did take some up on top of the Lewiston Hill, so north and south. We took one halfway up the Lewiston Hill and then all the way up so you can kind of see changes in elevation. Mm -hmm. And what we would do is we'd go on these sampling campaigns where, you know, one, if you're unlucky because it takes forever to drive to all these different locations, but two or three of us would go to each of these locations with these tubes and try to take samples, you know, near the same time. And so we, we got a 
a whole bunch of samples all over. And what was really interesting to see was, and obviously, as expected, another one was at um, near Pepsi Park, downtown Lewiston, ah, mm-hmm. was you could see that the ones at Pepsi Park uh, and then Sunset Park, you'd see really high levels there. But by the time you got to um, the orchards, the the compound levels would drop off pretty dramatically. Ah, so and then by the time you got places. to Lapway, the levels were pretty pretty low. So I was safe then because I grew up in Waha. Yeah, you were pretty safe. Not really <laughs> affected. <laughs> I'd say you were safe. <laughs> um, I, I don't, like I said, I don't recall if the average concentrations are of concern, mm-hmm. but I do remember individual samples being very, very high at times mm. and, and being surprised at the levels of some of these carcinogens that were in the air. Yeah. And again, that everything moves around and spreads, but, you know, for people working at the mill, you are exposed to higher levels of carcinogens than you would be in Waha. Sure. And, and that's, and whether or not the levels we were seeing, you know, over time, the way they like to look at it is... They say, what's the percentage of deaths per 100,000 people? Like, how many more deaths can you attribute to, like, cancer mm-hmm. for, per 100,000 people <clears throat> over this time? And I remember one study that came out of WSU in, like, 2010. They sent a bunch of their samples off to labs to be analyzed, and then these health scientists look at it. And that one study said, I think it was, like, eight so it caused eight more deaths per 100,000 people. Mm. And that only counts people that live in the valley for their whole life. You know what I mean? So right. it's really hard to pinpoint. And I think, I don't know if this still exists, but I think back in the day they found that there was a different sort of weird radical type of cancer that existed only in the valley. And it was from externalities associated with the mill. But this was a long I've time heard ago. that. I haven't seen anything about Me it. Either. And being able I to just say heard about it. like there's a there's a whole there's a breakdown between like measuring samples and, and saying, you know, this is what we found at these times and all that. And then being able to relate that to A, what the source is. I mean, with the mill it's pretty cool because if you're seeing these sulfur compounds, you can kind of say you know, came if there's other high levels of compounds and sulfur compounds, probably some of them came from the mill. But a lot of these things also come from uh, gasoline exhaust mm-hmm. fumes. So uh, cars, there's who knows what's coming out of some of the other industries that we have. Like I think it's CCI still. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Uh, and Vista then, Outdoors. Vista Outdoors. Yeah. So uh, there's, it's really difficult to pinpoint exactly where it's coming from. I think the paper that I, which I should have browsed before you came over again, uh, shows kind of these, it's like a heat map of compounds uh, overlaid kind of over the valley. And Mm -hmm. that's really interesting to see. Hmm. So we should have Nancy come in to tell us exactly kind of average concentrations and background concentrations that they're seeing for some of these compounds. Yeah, that would be great. And I think she's probably looked into some of the health effects and what levels it takes to start creating some of these um, adverse health effects. Mm-hmm. which would be really interesting too. That would be cool. But that was a lot of fun. It got me a lot of experience and it got me a spot, you know, in grad school, mm-hmm. which is over. 
Yay. Yay. <laughs> um, that was, that was really neat. I got a lot of good lab experience, um, which every time you run one of these samples, uh, you take with the two back to the lab, it takes about 40 to 50 minutes to, to do that one analysis. Mm-hmm. And then we clean them when they're done. So you run it again to clean it. And mm-hmm. so you're like at two hours for every sample you want to take and how many samples did you take Hundreds. if you had to ballpark it? Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. A yeah. lot of time. <laughs> it was a lot of time. Lot but, of time, you know, you're effort. sitting there. I got a lot of homework done and, and all that stuff, so it wasn't so bad. Right. Um, no, that was a that was a good experience, uh, and we were measuring sulfur and some of these other things. It'd be interesting to see. I know, I think it was in 2015, the mill, it was potlatched at that time. Oh, it might have been Clearwater Paper. It was Clearwater Paper. Yeah, I guess that happened a while ago. Mm-hmm. Time's flying. Uh, they got hit uh, with the, by the EPA on a Clean Air Act oh. uh, violation. So that would have been around the same time they were upgrading all their equipment. I don't know if I remember when they put in a, you know, I don't know how many millions of dollars it was to put in these new digesters. But that mm-hmm. was because... They're regulated on how much of these certain compounds they can release into the air, and they were releasing too much. And I can't speak to some of the water stuff. I know they've had some issues here and again with with water. But when you have a process that big, I mean, it's just impressive how big some of these buildings are and, and how much they're doing. It's gonna happen every once again. And I think I think they're fair I think they're pretty careful. I'm not here to speak yeah. ill of the mill. No, I think so too. And I think um I think for the most part, my dad would tell you that they go probably to painstaking measures to make sure that accidents don't happen, that they're doing everything by the book. Um, and, and I mean, of course, it's in their best interest and everybody's to do that as well, right? Because yeah, we live here. We're exposed We live to here it. and they're arguably the town's largest employer. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, they've got to do right by everybody that lives here. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think we should uh, take a break and uh, make these jabronis listen to a commercial. What do you say? Let's do it. Hey, everyone. Just wanted to take a quick break to tell you about our new Patreon account. That's right, OSP fans. You can now directly help us fund this show and get access to exclusive content. For more information and to learn how you can support the show, head to patreon.com slash Podcast. Now back to the show. That sure was uh, insightful and enlightening. That was a commercial. Uh, <laughs> uh, all right. So, Drew, I am very excited. I We've been hanging out for quite a while now, and I still haven't heard too much about your Ecuador trips. Which is surprising because I feel like I talk about it um, an annoying amount. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess not that annoyingly. Uh, you could do better. Uh, the, I guess the first time I heard about it is when you had a fundraiser for the last time you went at Riverport. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the last time we met, we went, um, I sort of came up with this fundraiser that we hosted at Riverport. Um, when this is all over and you're able to go with around with your normal lives, go to Riverport. Check and in episode. the meantime, go down to Riverport and curbside, get a growler. That's right. Um, tell Pete we said hi. Mm-hmm. Um, but what it was was a Bob Ross-themed painting night. So we had an instructor come along and uh, 
sort of teach you how to paint in the Bob Ross style. Friendly um, little trees with friends and buddies. That's right. And we had like a green screen that you could uh, go get your picture taken with Bob Ross. And we had like Bob Ross playing in the background. It was it was a really great event. There were quite a few people there. It was pretty successful. Um, but yeah, we do a lot of fundraising for the Ecuador program. So basically what the Ecuador program is, or ANTH 489, the Andean Field School is, uh, it's a semester long class where you're, it's sort of set up sort of like Hell's Canyon. You're going to learn about Ecuador for the entire semester while you're also building a research design for what you're going to ultimately research in Ecuador. So it happens every other spring. And the person who is responsible for all this is my advisor, um, Dr. Krenza Allison. She's a great professor. And I mean, it's definitely was the most impactful class that I took in my time at LC. So if, if you are considering going to Ecuador anytime soon, you're a student at LC, definitely check it out. Um, it's again, an ID class or interdisciplinary. So you can take it from any background. So if you're a chemist again, or business law or whatever it is that you're doing, you can take this class and, and build a research design around that or around whatever you want. So it's not totally set in stone what you have to do. But um, basically, you're going to learn about Ecuador, Ecuadorian culture, some of the sites that we're going to visit while you're there. And then it's always in the spring. It's every other year. So after semester's over, everyone's graduated or is done for the, the semester of the year. Um, you get a weekend, I think between the time the school ends and when you leave. So it's pretty quick. You're, you're done with school, um, and then you're on a plane. You head down to Ecuador, and you land in Guayaquil, and you stay in five different cities while you're there. So you go to Guayaquil, and then you go to the Andes in Cuenca. So Guayaquil's on the coast. Then you're going to kind of work your way back up through the Andes. You go to, um, actually, you go to the jungle. So it depends on what her setup is for that year. So one year we went to a place uh, called Misawai. It's a little river um, that's sort of into the Amazon. Um, but last year we went to a different place where I hadn't been to before, which was, uh, uh, it was a Shuar community. And I'm trying to remember the name of that particular region, and I can't at this moment. But again, it's sort of a rainforest area and uh we can throw some pics on facebook and instagram and you can get an idea of what it looks like um then you we head up again into the andes and you go north you go to otavalo um which is home to the largest open-air indigenous market in all of south america it's really cool you can go and try your hand at haggling and doing your best to speak Spanish. <laughs> I actually did take a lot of Spanish in high school, and I'm pretty rusty now. But I went to Mexico a few years ago with Rachel and Katie and my Caitlin, mm -hmm. and I didn't do too bad. I made a friend with the bartender, Omar. Um, he liked dancing. and <laughs> <laughs> No, but it was good. I had my little Spanish-English notebook, and I'd go plop myself down at the bar and talk with Omar. And nice. We had a lot of fun. And, uh, you know, pro tip, they do serve weak drinks uh, at the, at the all-you-can-drink places, which they should because people are drinking way right. too much. 
But if you uh, know a little Spanish and tell the bartender that the girls don't think that uh, they can get them drunk, uh, they can. <laughs> that was uh, that was a lot of fun. So, so um, that's a good tip for if you're headed to Mexico. Just learn, you know, yeah, just learn a few key <laughs> phrases and it'll open a lot of doors. Yep. How many people went along with you in the class? So how many people kind of went? It okay. varies. So um, it, it depends on interest and it depends on how much space is available and, and what um, Dr. Allison is able to do. Um, some years we get more grants. Some years we get more uh, money from fundraising efforts. So I say we like I'm still a part of it, but <laughs> um, but uh, it, it, it just depends. Uh, the first year I went, I think there were 18 of us. The second year I went, I want to say there were 11. So there, there was a lot fewer people. I think if you had like right in between there, that'd be the perfect amount. There was a lot the first time, and there was too few, I guess, the second time. Was it kind of hard keeping track of everybody? I mean, you got a bunch of college students in a foreign country. I mean, sort of. You kind of get free reign part of the day to do whatever you want. But again, the key here is that it's not like just a trip. You know, it's it's an academic endeavor. Where oh, you're, right. You were saying you spend the whole first part of the semester planning something to do while you're over there. Yeah. So what uh, What were some of the things that some people did, and then what are some of the things that you were looking at when you went over? Yeah, so there's been a lot of great work done um, through that program that I've seen. Um, one of them that sticks out in my mind was um, Angel Barnett, who I believe you know. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. She did research on, like, uh, data collection on, on, like, garbage and recycling um, within the country there of Ecuador. Um, others did some on like graffiti, monitoring cultural themes and graffiti. Um, some people did stuff on like ecological different factors. Um, some people did things on like condor populations, um, Andean condors, not Californian. Yeah. Um, the cousin of the California condor. The cousin, the much cooler, larger. Larger, huh? I believe so. Yeah. Um, and some people did some on like education, but there's just a myriad of different things that people have looked at. Um, I think one cool one that people should do if they're going to go down is, um, arbor glyphs. Arbor glyphs. So it's yeah. tree. Is it's people like, living in or th- things that live in trees? No, it's like carvings. Glyphs. Oh, glyphs. I, glyphs. Yeah. I'm an idiot. Arbor cliffs. <laughs> Arbor glyphs. Yeah. Arbor glyphs. So pictures of trees or on trees? No, it's like a, you know, like. Jack loves Diane oh, carved yeah, into yeah, a tree. Yeah. Um, for whatever reason, in South America, from what I've seen, many, 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 many people carve stuff into trees. Interesting. So I think it'd be fun to uh, catalog that and see what trends you could find. That is neat because you kind of some, somewhat tell which ones are older based on, on yeah. how, how faint yeah. or if grown over a, they are. If you were a botanist, I guess you you may know a little bit better than I do too. Yeah, but. and well, I wanted to go into I, I think it was like two years before I was going to graduate or a year before I was going to graduate. I really wanted to look into ethnobotany because mm-hmm. as a chemist, um, a lot of people may not know most of the medications that we get come from plants they're made in plants and so what will happen is an ethnobotanist will go over it'll meet some of the local um doctors that's Mm -hmm. quotation marks for people aren't 
watching. So doctors uh, that know the different uh, flora of the area and know which plants to use for certain ailments. Mm -hmm. One of the ones I like to to kind of um, think about, and and it's kind of this weird uh, similarity thing. So for ear infections, which is a fungal infection, there's certain mushrooms that they'll take and they'll drip the mushroom juice into the ear to combat Mm. the fungal infection. So there's just a ton of stuff like that. And then ethnobotanists go, they meet with these people and they learn the plants, they take the plants back, they give them to the analytical chemist who separates all the different components of the plant. And then they test those components and make new medications. And like Mm -hmm. most new medications come from these different plants in these areas. So that's something I was really interested in. But it would have taken me another like year of school to do that. And Mm -hmm. I was still on the fence of whether I wanted to be one of the guys that went over there and did that or one of the chemists that analyzed them in the lab. And, you know. So there actually is um, an ethnobotanist from WSU that studies in Bolivia. Very cool. Yeah, I met him uh, in my time at Tri-State Outfitters, and I kind of compared notes with him about Ecuador. He's from Bolivia, and uh, like I said, he researches at WSU. So I, I forget the name of that gentleman, but uh, he's That's a really, really great neat. guy. Yeah, I'd like to go to Bolivia as well. And on that note, um, we actually got to go on a medicinal plant hike and learn some traditional medicine while in the jungle. Huh. So we got to see some different trees and and how they cure certain ailments, yeah, um, and how they deal with living in the jungle because you're, like you said, prone to many different fungal infections. Ringworm being right. one, ringworm that's, huge. Yep, that's very common. Like a huge portion of people live in the jungle. They're just yeah. they just have it's that's unavoidable. Just part of their life. Yeah, it's unavoidable. Yeah. Uh, but that all stemmed for me from learning about in the 1930s, these guys that would go to Mexico mm-hmm. and, um, and do peyote and then uh, mushrooms, which mm-hmm. some of the local uh, Mexicans, they called the mushrooms, they were Jesus, mm-hmm. is what they actually called those, the psychedelic mushrooms. Mm-hmm. But some of the stories about these guys finding these things and then sending them back to the chemists who would then, I remember one story, uh, they send a bunch of these mushrooms, psychedelic mushrooms back to this chemist who fed them to some animal. I think it was a dog. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, the dog's fine. And then ate a bunch of them. <laughs> and then, you know, no one was going on mushroom trips in the, you know, Western world, we'll right. say in America. This was pretty new. Mm-hmm. Um but especially what piqued my interest was Albert Hoffman in the in the 1940s being sent this uh, fungus that grew on um, wheat called ergot. And, of course, if you eat ergot, it's a vasoconstrictor, uh, so it'll constrict your blood vessels. So you, mm-hmm. you, you can lose digits, fingers and toes, from losing circulation. And what he was looking into was uh, different things to stop bleeding in in childbirth so if you had something go wrong in childbirth where there was a lot of bleeding he was looking for compounds that would help staunch that bleeding Mm -hmm. and so he took the ergot and he separated out and uh, he found all these things called like lysergic acid um, bases and so he went through and he found some number of them and it was this lysergic acid diethylamine 25 it was his 25th um 
version of it that he had kind of found and played with the chemical structure of, well, it was during World War II. There was a gas shortage, so everybody was on uh, their bicycle rides. His and famous so, ride. So his famous ride, he spilled a bunch on his hand, uh, tripped very much so, mm-hmm. and then rode his bike home and sat in the dark and just had kind of the world's first LSD trip, mm-hmm. not knowing what LSD was. And yeah. then uh, the next the next week, him and his, he didn't know which one it was. So the next week, he started just injecting two and a half milliliters of all these different things to himself. You got to love these old school chemists. Mm-hmm. Till he found the right one. And a milliliter, right? That's like, a, there's a thousand milliliters in a Nalgene. Mm-hmm. Um, you're only supposed to take about 250 microliters. So he took a thousand times, he basically took a thousand hits of acid yeah. on that first controlled, um, you know, the, the the one that was on purpose. Yeah. And that's like, uh, uh... he lived to be 102. And <laughs> on his 100th birthday, somebody had found some of his original uh, LSD 25 from mm-hmm. back in the day. And him and a bunch of friends on his 100th birthday all took a bunch of LSD. That's pretty cool. That's nuts. So anyway, that piqued my interest into this whole ethno-botany uh, chemistry thing, but I have gotten yeah. off topic. Yeah, you, you could have you uh, could have uh, stepped into my realm a little bit of anthropology. That yeah. yeah, I was super interested. It would be cool. And um, actually, that region that you were talking about, um, where they grow those mushrooms in Mexico, there's a really cool episode of Hamilton's Pharmacology. Uh, where oh they, yeah, that where looks they, so they go good. I haven't seen any of those. I've just it's, seen some small. It's clips. awesome. That was before um, Vice was utterly and totally ruined. <laughs> yeah, now, it's gotten real strange. It's horrible now. Yeah. Viceland is horrible. Um, they should just quit. But, yeah. But you had this chance through Lewis Clark State College to go to Ecuador. Mm-hmm. You went on these medicinal trip, or you went on the one medicinal hike, mm-hmm. and uh, did, what, what kind of stuff were they telling you about? So we looked at a plant that was similar to like a rubber tree. It may have actually been a rubber tree, but um, what the... Yeah, rubber comes from trees, people. Yeah, it does. <laughs> it's kind of a crazy thing. Um, the gentleman that was leading us on our uh, hike asked if anyone had a cut. And somebody inevitably raised their hand and said, yep, I do. And he said, okay, let me see it. He walks over to this tree and puts a small little dash in it and out of it secretes this like blood it looks like what they call dragon's blood and he gets a little bit of it on his finger and he rubs it over this cut and it essentially creates this like natural band-aid it was like a rubber like substance over this cut see that's like the thing it looks like blood you put it over your cut Yep. It just, like, there's these weird... Well, once you start to get a little bit of friction on it, um, it actually makes, like, a white sort of paste. Okay. And then, again, like I said, it hardens into this sort of rubber. And um, it, it it seals up, and it, it works. It, it works for a long period of time. Um, so that was one of the coolest things. But, I mean, in addition to that, you get to go to a million different cool places. You get to go to... Um, what they call the poor man's Galapagos. Um, Galapagos is also part of Ecuador. Um, but, but you get to go see like blue footed boobies and frigate birds and, uh, Nazca boobies. Now you're just trying not to curse, aren't you? (laughs) (laughs) Boobies and frigates. Um, No, that's really neat. Yeah. Bunch of cool lizards, I bet. A lot of lizards. Yeah. Um, there are many iguanas, um, in Guayaquil. There's a park. Do the iguanas just like hang out? Yeah, they do. They kind of do. Uh, gigantic ones. Yeah. Yeah. You have to kind of 
watch out to make sure you don't get hit with feces and urine from these gigantic... Because they're like in the trees and stuff. Yeah, huge iguanas. Um, but yeah, I mean, just a bit of primer on Ecuador itself, whether or not you're a student. Yeah, I was going to ask, what are some of the things... You say you spend half of the semester learning about Ecuadorian culture. Mm-hmm. So if someone's going to go visit Ecuador, what are some things that have they, that they should know before they go? Well, if if you want to go there on a vacation, I would highly recommend it. Um, very safe. They drive on the right side of the road. They take the U.S. dollar. That's their uh, main they mode of currency. They were by the queen. <laughs> no, that's their main mode of currency. Um, they have within that little area, roughly the size of Colorado, the ocean. They have the desert. They have the Andean mountains. They have the Amazon rainforest. Um so within that little space, you have all these different places and things that you can check out. And it's relatively easy to get around. So at one point, a few years ago, they were really trying to promote tourism within country um, and purchasing things that are made in Ecuador. So what they did was they really went to these great lengths to make the roads really smooth and nice so that everybody could get around easily. And you can, for the most part. I mean, there were never places that were super washed out or anything like that. Um, It's really safe. Everything is extremely affordable. Um, That city that I mentioned earlier, Cuenca, where you spend a lot of time there if you are in that class, um, it's in the Andes, so it sits pretty high up. So have with you at all times sunscreen have with you at all times uh, a little bit of chocolate or Coca-Cola or coffee to sort of curb your uh, altitude sickness. Um, when you're higher at a higher elevation, you're more prone to getting sunburn. So again, wear some sunscreen. But that place actually has, I believe, the highest number of expats per capita hmm. in the world from the U.S. So you can go down this uh, certain street and there's a little neighborhood that they call Gringolandia. And it's just full of of white folks uh, from the U.S. Um, So it's it's really cool. It's easy to sort of dip your foot into the world of travel that way, I feel, because everybody speaks English pretty well, seemingly. Um, If they don't, they're usually understanding. Some of the biggest uh, moneymakers in Ecuador are tourism. Um, They also grow a lot of bananas. So a lot of bananas that you eat come from Ecuador. yeah. Um, and then another big industry for them is oil and chocolate production. Um, there's chocolate a, also comes from trees. It does. Pods. Um, again, if you were bored and you want to check something out, um, there's an episode of It's Alive. Um, it's just a Bon Appetit show on YouTube um, where Brad Leone goes to Ecuador. And he goes to a place, a region that I've never been to that's sort of in the northwest. It's an area called Esmeraldas. Um, where they grow a lot of cocoa, a lot of uh, pods that go to, I think it's the Guitard Chocolate Factory in San Francisco. Hmm. Um, Really cool. I'd check that out. But, I mean, I think going into it, I thought that I was going to be going into a third world country. It's not like that at all. I mean, there are, of course, certain places where it's a little more rustic. um, But, like, Quito, Guayaquil, Cuenca, all of these cities are like major cities that you go to anywhere, Um, particularly Guayaquil and Quito. Quito is the capital. Um, Millions of people. 
it's just like a modern city like anywhere else. Uh, it's really affordable if you wanted to live there. So if you had like a rental property or something like that here in the States where you got a consistent income, I would definitely move and retire there. <laughs> it would be pretty cool. Um, so but, what's yeah. some of the research that you did while you were there? So the first time I went, um, I researched uh, a couple different things, but I, I mainly looked at like youth smoking behaviors and, and how that correlates with youth culture. Um, in 2011, they put in place a lot of these, uh, procedures and acts to keep people from smoking. Um, so they have kind of this weird smoking culture in Ecuador. Typically women and girls do not smoke. It's usually like young boys and old men who, that you'll see, who you'll see smoking and they're like giving it up somewhere in between adolescence and their twenties and then taking it back up again when they're older. Um, that's sort of the trend. And if you look at like the world health organization, you can kind of see that pattern as well. And it's what I saw in my observational research. Um, you don't really see that many people smoking. And if you do, again, it's usually younger adolescent boys or older men. Hmm. Um, and people don't generally smoke in public places because there again are these strict penalties that were put in place in 2011. So Many people don't smoke there. Oh, straight up penalties. Yeah, penalties and just, it's just frowned upon. People are like, what are you doing? Don't do that. Kind of like here, you know, like you wouldn't really go into a restaurant now and smoke. No, that'd be pretty strange. Yeah. Yeah. But when we were kids, there were smoking sections, right? Mm -hmm. So it's sort of like that. Um, The second time I went, um, I made and collected a bunch of... uh, clips and interviews for Dr. Allison to sort of catalog what she's doing in her research, um, which is how can I make the best program? Um, How can I make the best uh, place-based learning situation happen for my students or her students rather? Um, And she looks at tourism as well. So it was sort of capturing all this stuff. So I got to take a lot of footage with my drone um, and then I invested a bunch of time in learning how to really push the sensors in an iPhone and got these cool little lenses that attach to my iPhone. They're made by a company called Moment out of Seattle. Um, Really cool if you're into mobile photography. Um, And then another app that I used was Filmic Pro, and it allows you to really, again, push the sensors of of your iPhone and I think it turned out pretty good. A lot of the yeah, footage I've seen turned out some of good. the footage of it. It turned out really well. Yeah, for being shot on an iPhone mm-hmm. for sure, and a drone. Um, so that's what I focused on, um, Doctor Allison. If you're listening, I'm still working on your video now. <laughs> so hopefully, it's done here pretty quick. Um, if and again, if you're interested in this program, you should definitely. Uh, go on Facebook and like LCSC's Anthropology Club. Um, you should also follow um, LCSC's Ecuador program on Instagram, and I'll get you the official handle for that now. Yeah, I just think it's super cool that, that Lewis Clark State College, as we mentioned at the top, the tuition is super low, and then just the quality of the faculty and the opportunities that you and I both got and that are available to LCSD students is just outstanding. Yeah, and again, that's one of the things that makes this region really great is this really cool state college that we have um, right here in the Valley where, like you said, we're getting this top-tier quality of education. I know um, 
what's his Lee Lee Latta. Yeah, um, Damien, when we were in Ecuador, was discussing with me about how he teaches you a class in which he learned from his time at Harvard. And he right. said, this is exactly how I would teach the class if you're students at Harvard. Yeah, so, we've got a Harvard professor, Nancy Johnston. She studied under Dr. Uh, I think it was Sherry Rowland, who discovered the link between CFCs and the ozone layer right. uh, from UC Irvine. Yeah, yeah. Um, and again, um, Dr. Krenz Allison is a great researcher as well. She's done a lot of really cool research in Ecuador herself, uh, looking at, again, tourism. And she also spent a lot of time looking at garden magic in women's gardens, um, right. traditional gardening practices. Um, but you yeah, find that, that uh, yeah, I found handle. that handle. Um, <laughs> I should know it cause I actually am the admin on that still, but it's LCSC underscore Ecuador underscore field school. So go follow us on there. Um, and you can get a, a sort of inside look at what it's like to be in country and check out some of the stuff that we, that we do while we're there, um, researching and what we get to see. Um, yeah. And then you and I need to get on the ball and start inviting some of these faculty members in, in, into the show so they can give us kind of a more in-depth and well-rounded view of definitely. some of these programs. Yeah, for sure. Um, and you know, I don't know. I just, while we have the, the, a second to talk about, it, I just want to say thanks to all these people that, oh yeah, big thank you that have made this impact on us and that we've been fortunate enough to spend time learning under because yeah, it just changed, I think the trajectory of both of our lives. And again, we got to do it at a, at a really affordable cost and right here at home. Yeah, it was awesome. And I think it's kind of funny that we both kind of uh, entered into it after a short break from high school. And yeah. that transition was very smooth, very smooth. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> well, I think that about does it for us today. Is yeah. there anything else you wanted to add? Any more? Um, I think I just wanted to give a shout out to the Sarmiento family who hosted me twice while I was in Ecuador. So I'll definitely have to hit them up and tell them to check out this uh, episode and they'll have to let me know what I what I forgot. <laughs> yeah. They're great people and it was awesome for them to let me uh, stay in their home twice. Um, and also uh, my good friend that I made in Ecuador, uh, Nico. Nico, uh, check out this episode. Can't wait to see you again, bud. Hope you're doing well and you're safe right now and your family's safe. And I think that's it. I think that's it. I think, again, I'll just uh, leave everybody with a, I hope you're doing well. Thank you for listening. Thank you to our Patreon supporters. Um, and enjoy the beautiful weather we've been having. It's been gorgeous lately. I went in an outdoor pool today. Nice. Yeah, and I didn't pee in it. I tried to not get heat stroke while putting in a fence. Yeah, right. <laughs> the new house, you got your fence going in. Yep. So okay. I'm excited about the episodes that are coming. Uh, one in particular... That's going to be really cool. That's based on summer. I don't know when that'll come out. Oh, yeah. I'm stoked on that one. Yeah. We should probably do that pretty soon. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. It's going to be, I think, one of my favorite ones that we'll have done so far. Yeah. We're going to have some fun stuff coming through. We've got a few interviews lined up. We're going to try to do some more and uh, just keep this fun. I mean, we went a little outside the valley, but um, yeah. I mean, it's all part of, 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 you know, part of what makes this place a, a great place a great place to live yeah and uh i don't know i'll quit rambling because i'm obviously <laughs> out of things to talk about everyone have a good week we'll see you next week Bye.
Thanks, everyone.